0: Where is Ryan? Can we fill that in?
1: We don't want to leave our you know, listeners hanging. Hello and welcome to the One Football Podcast. My name is Ian McCourt. Joining me today is Paddy Higgs. Hello. Kasper Schmink. Hello. And Ryan Kent. Nah, Ryan Kent couldn't quite make it out of the office and into our fancy new studio today, but Fabian Gorsler could. Hey guys. On today's show we'll be talking about ugly football jerseys, El Clasico, and whether or not Tottenham are going to win the league. And thank you for joining us at this at this late stage, Fabian. No worries, guys.
0: So can we fill in? But wait, where is Ryan? Can we fill that in? Is, we don't want to leave our, you know, Ryan is hanging.
1: otherwise his brain is sort of otherwise engaged. Okay. Why
0: is that? Why, why is that? Well,
1: he stayed out till four o'clock uh, and okay, drinking right. <laughs> beer, and uh, has spent most of the day sleeping on the one football couch. <laughs> now, Paddy, our listeners don't know you, but I know you.
0: You do, you do, Ian. You're a good guy. Thanks, mate. Mum says so too.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Mum doesn't count. Uh, but behind those dancing eyes and that shiny smile, there's an anger.
0: Yeah, I'm a little bit annoyed. Did you,
1: did you want to share that
0: anger with the world? I think I'm just disappointed. I think I'm more, you know, I'm more just disappointed. We're we're getting up towards the Euros, and this is a great time for a fan to be, you know, um, to anticipate. Um, their their team um, as the tournament approaches. And part of that anticipation, part of that build-up, is the new kits that, that come around. And, um, you know, I remember before the, the World Cup in 2014, when all the kits started to arrive, and there were some really nice kits. I don't know if I was alone in that, but there were some really nice kits released before the 2014 World Cup. Um, Nike released theirs a couple of weeks ago ahead of the Euros, and I would say that they are... Definitely not nice kits. I mean, I really think they've dropped the ball on this. They had some really, uh, some really uh, eye-catching kits ahead of the uh, the World Cup, the last World Cup. Whereas you look at the ones now, it's like they've just got a cut by numbers sort of scheme that they've they've applied for to most uh, kits, and then the other ones, of course, are just as dull as dishwater. So I mean, you have a look at the England kit, which looks like it's it's been in the uh, in the in the hot wash. A little bit, <laughs> or and then left out. It too, does, doesn't it? Left out in the sun a few too many days. It looks like it's faded. I mean, the reception that that's got has been pretty poor. Um, one thing that you can't do as a kit maker, possibly, is stuff up the French kit. It is the easiest and the best looking kit going around. They've got all the right colours. Everything you need. Everything you need. You know, navy blue. I mean, navy sort of dark blue. Maybe a hint of red if you want to get adventurous. Nice white shorts. You know, do you remember that sort of horizontal stripes one that they did?
1: Uh the blue the the white the away one with the white exactly. and then the thin blue stripe yep. I haven't it. Yeah it's it's a fantastic I kit. I look glorious in <laughs> it. Yeah.
0: Um, but somehow Nike seemed to have yeah. <laughs> somehow Nike seemed to have stuffed that up as well. Um it's really quite a disappointing um you know a disappointing uh, production I guess from, from Was the
1: heard. was the English kit worse than the Germany kit?
0: Uh you mean the German away kit the green one? The German away kit yeah. I actually think it looked a bit Don't better it, than Hadi. I expected. Yeah. Oh. Just from afar, maybe you know from afar I mean what what was what anyone else think Which of Germany green the awake it, the new awake it the uh the light green one, yeah, did you see that one? yeah, I me? mean, you're not alone. I thought it was horrible when it first came out and the whole
2: t- using it as a training kit because it's reversible thing was kind of stupid, but now that they've worn it it it's not a nice kit, but it's definitely nicer
0: than nike's kits absolutely i, I, I couldn't care absolutely
3: yeah. i don't, I don't like the round colors, I, I think they need a proper. Collar on it, um, but apart from that, uh, I think the Germany kit looks bad anyway.
0: It's yeah. interesting that you said about the collars because uh, Nike also did not just the Euro teams, but quite other, um, quite other, a lot of other sort of na- uh, nations that they they produced for. And one of them was the Australian kit, and the one during the World Cup was. Probably one of my favourite Australia kits. Just a plain, you know, yellow. Uh, we'll call it gold, but it's, it's definitely more of a yellow with a with a green collar, classic collar. Just looked terrific, and they've brought out the new one um, before the friendlies uh, just recently, just last week. And I don't know wh- how they've got it so wrong. I mean, but
2: Patty, it's all about the technology. You know, they've got the new Vapor Seven Dry Fit <laughs> technology. It nobody cares what a kit looks like anymore. I mean, the fans buy it because of the technology, right? Really? If you
0: can explain to me what that technology is, then uh, maybe I might buy it. I don't know
2: but- how much
1: that technology affects me when I'm. You know, straining hard in a five a side match too. Well to how keep much It affects
0: me when I'm seeing at the pub having a few pints trying to support my national team. Exactly.
1: Yeah. As bad as the as bad as the England and German ones were, they're not the worst of all time though, are they?
0: No, there has been a lot worse. There definitely has been a lot worse. I think Casper's got a got one to kick us off on that one actually.
3: Yeah, <clears throat> I mean it's it's a little bit cheap, uh, because it's a goalkeeper kit and goalkeeper kits tend to be strange ones. Um but I mean I'd have to go with um Jorge Campos. Um the dwarf uh, Mexican oh, yeah. keeper from the nineties. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just remember World Cup '94. He was wearing this neon, super bright, um, psychedelic shirt. Uh, basically, looks like you know, like a raver or like an overdressed raver or something from the nineties. <laughs>
1: um, just missing the smiley face on the jersey. Yeah, awesome.
3: exactly. But it's full of arrows and like strange um, shapes and and basically. Um, I don't know, I thought like opposing strikers probably thought they were on some kind of LSD or trip or something <laughs> when, when they were running towards him. Um.
1: He designed it himself, you know.
3: Yeah, yeah, he mm. did, yeah. yeah, he's
1: and it's quite the renaissance, man.
0: Yeah. Well, it's stuck in the memory. You know, that's the thing about fashion. If it, if it endures, then yeah. you've certainly struck a chord. I've got one too. Go.
1: Um, back in the 70s, Coventry had this <clears throat> sort of all nut brown number. It was just all brown. It kind of looked, you've been to festival, right? Sure. You know, when you go to the toilet on like the third day oh, of the no. festival and it's got that smell, uh, this kit was the equivalent of that smell. <laughs> it was awful. Right. Well, it's usually one of those lists of like, you know, the top 10 worst kits. This Coventry one makes it. it. It makes it for me.
0: I mean, that makes sense. To be honest, brown should be the last color that should be on a football kit. Terrible. If someone can name one decent brown one, it's Actually, not sounds, decent.
2: Yeah. It's not decent. But it's brown. Colorado <laughs> caribou's. Uh, I think it was 78. It had tassels across the chest.
0: That is very memorable, that one.
2: Horrible. And the promotional, pic- the promotional pictures they took for that kit, I mean, shocking. You've ha- you have these overweight professional footballers wearing these skin-tight tasseled, tasseled kits doing weird things. I mean, do yourself a favor and Google it. Or m- maybe don't. Either way, they were horrible.
1: Getting back to more matters on the field, Kasper, you had an eye on the Germany games, the win over Italy and the defeat to England. What did you take away from it all?
3: I think the main takeaway from from these two games and sort of generally friendly games that involve Germany is that you shouldn't take too much away from them (laughs) because Germany (laughs) tends to be a whole different beast in tournaments. Um, So, I mean, obviously the England game, you know, losing to... A rival like England in Berlin is, you know, after leading 2-0, you know, it's not the stuff of dreams. But then again, actually winning against Italy, who are the far bigger rival in football terms uh, than England, um, is the stuff of dreams. And pretty, you know, it's actually a, a nice takeaway from it is that we can beat Italy, which hasn't happened since 1995. Uh, in fact, Germany have never won a competitive match against England, uh, against Italy. Um, They've a, so a, you know? they a real psychological hold, you know. They've a real psychological hold over Germany, don't they? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's horrible. You know, they they really are a nemesis, and uh, and um, you know, actually now it's it's a really good omen for the for the European Championships because um, when Italy won the World Cup uh, in two thousand six, they won a friendly against Germany four one, and now we won four one against Italy. And are marching to France now. Yeah. Football so, fans
0: will take any omen they can get, can't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: But I mean, I mean, seriously, I think there were a few takeaways. Um, I mean, I think they showed that they can, you know, they can play in, in kind of different tactical formations, pretty flexible. Um, Leve has um, a bunch of players that are very versatile, um, which is reflected in some of the. Uh, choices he made uh, in terms of, um, you know, sort of squad composition. Um, uh, Sebastian Rudy, um, whose uh, nomination I really, really do not understand. Uh, uh, you know, it's at least he can play full back, he can play defensive mid uh, and so on, um, which might justify his uh, inclusion in the squad. But um, Ian, you... Yeah, I enjoy
1: it. I, I, I watched the Italy game at home the other day and I really enjoyed Rudy at right back.
0: I thought he was good. It wasn't like they were necessarily playing a very strong team. I mean, the, those flanks, were, it was like the Italians were allergic to those flanks, to be honest. <laughs> they did not make it out there. Um, and it made it really hard for um, you know f- for them to actually sort of capitalise on any sort of chances that they, they tried to do. But, that, I mean, how often did we see the Italians really get to the touchline? It just didn't quite happen. And I agree with, yeah. with Casper in saying that Rudy is a, is a very uh, versatile and thus a very valuable player to have in a squad, but I certainly don't see him as a first-choice right or right-wing-back. Who would be your Um, first-choice at right-back for Germany then? Again, we spoke about this in the office. I think Eric Durham has been very impressive um, for Dortmund in the last couple of weeks. He probably looked like a player who was almost on his way out um, at the end of Klopp's reign at Dortmund and has really sort of bounced back. He's just His engine is amazing. He just doesn't stop running. Um, And I think he could probably do as good a job um, as Rudy and probably a better job defensively.
3: Yeah, but actually, coming back to the versatility, I think actually um, we might end up with a situation like at the World Cup where Germany were playing with four centre backs across uh, the back. Um, should Hovidas make it back, you know, into the squad, he might be in contention for that. Um, actually, and left back Hector did an all right job. Um, I mean, um, fair enough. Let's see uh, if he can make it in the big games. But um, Boateng has played right back. Uh, Mustafi has played right back. So there are a few options. Um, that are more set for the big stage than Sebastian Rudi.
1: At this stage, we were going to ask Ryan about how England felt after the last two games. But Fabian, you're going to step up to the plate and tell us, is Roy Hodgson going to be happy after those two games?
2: I think he is, with half of his team. I think he's going to be happy with his attack, but he's not going to be happy with his defense. And uh, as you know, England won 3-2 against Germany, and then they lost 2-1 against the Netherlands. So... You know, looking at the scores, you'd think, "Oh, okay, there were two different England teams out there—one that won, one that lost." But really, it was two different halves of a team in two games. So the attack against Germany in the last half—in the last half hour—they scored three goals. They were down two nil, one three two. They looked dynamic, they looked fluid. Um, everyone knew what they were, what they were doing, where to pass, where to run, and they looked really, really dangerous. But the back line just got dominated over those two games. They um, got out-muscled on that one Netherlands goal. You could argue whether or not it was a foul, but as a defender, you've got to get across and get the ball out before you even give the attacker the chance to take the ball off you. And then against Germany, um, the marking was all over the place. And I'm going to say that it's more the centre-backs that are the problem rather than the fullbacks. The fullbacks are fast. They're joining in with the attack. They look good. It's, you know, look at the options they have. They've got Jagielka they've got Stones who's having a really bad season you've got Terry and Cahill who are playing for a Chelsea team that's having a bad season then you've got Smalling who was terrific for 18 months but in the last three to four months he's just been average and it's it's got a lot to do with the club form but I think I think they need a leader out there and
1: who would you pick out of those two? two which two would you pick out of all of those
2: I'd have to go with Smalling because he hasn't been bad. He just hasn't been good. And then probably for the leadership aspect, Cahill, just because he's the oldest and most experienced. You know, Jagelka is up there as well. But he has kind of disappeared from the radar in, in recent years. And with Everton playing so badly, I don't think he's a valid option. He could go with the squad, but I don't think he should start.
1: I would play Stones instead of, instead uh, of, instead of Cahill. I think really? Stones. I think Stones has more aspects to his game. He's camera on the ball. He can. He's a bit more versatile. He can fill in the, the fullback position. He can bring the ball out of defence. I think he has occasional lapses in concentration, which is sort of comes with being a young player. But I
0: think that he's a much better all-round centre back than Cahill. I think it just goes to show that it's it's so much easier for Hodgson or for any coach really to take risks when it's not at the back, if that makes sense. I mean, you look at the the players he's brought into midfield over the last year, year and a half, guys like Dali Ali and, and um Eric Dyer and guys like that, of course who've deserved their place as well and have, you know, validated it as well. But you know, a guy like John Stones, who has been highly rated for a while, you can argue that he probably hasn't got a long run of games in that England team because it's it's just a little bit like um we shouldn't be risking those sort of players or we shouldn't be risking that sort of position on young players. And I think it's now caught catching up a little bit with England here because you're relying on a guy like Gary Cahill who's uh, honest and hardworking, a and very good leader, but he's obviously, the, the ceiling's there as well with a guy like Gary well, Cahill. Well,
2: the, the thing with England is they're on the cusp right now. They've got the best team they've had in a very long time. Um, the past few tournaments have basically been throwaway tournaments for them. They showed up and almost tested out players. They, they were horrible. And so I feel like, People are saying there is no pressure since they haven't won anything or been good in so long, but I feel like there really is pressure because of how well they did qualifying. They beat Germany just now, and they have a very very young and talented team. So I feel like, although people say the pressure isn't there, it definitely is, and that's why going with someone like Stones might be a bad choice.
3: <clears throat> I think two two of the things you said uh, should be highlighted. First is like you mentioned team. You know this this is a team for change. Um, in the past years, um, you know the the um, the England team has been hyped so badly by by the media because of big names, you know golden Generation, Lampard Gerard, and so on, Beckham. Um, and I think actually now this is the second part. Um, like the media and the, the you know the the team character of that team are decisive in the way that 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 England will perform, I think, um, because you know it's, the attitude and the mentality is great. And also with the German team uh, for the Euros, you know, it's all about the mentality. Or any team who wants to win it, they're all amazing teams. And there's a lot of tactics and so on. But the mentality is the decisive thing in the end. And um, they should just keep the balls quiet. Or it's a German saying. I'm not sure if I'm not sure it <laughs> really translates. Trans- I, I don't know how that one trans- <laughs> translates. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, Paddy, I got the shock of my life the other day. What was that? Tim Cahill. Yes, yeah, he's still playing. Yeah, he's still I mean, bang- And not only is he still playing, he's still banging in goals.
0: Absolutely. Um, I mean, it was a pretty good week uh, for Australia. Um, first of all, one of twelve teams to to progress into the third round of qualifying in Asia. Um, yeah, there's still seven <laughs> seven very good teams in the running. <laughs> you guys can all look down, but uh, you know, Fabian spent a lot of time in Asia. He knows that the football is very competitive there.
2: Uh very competitive in a small group,
0: though. I was just after a year. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> yes. I agree, Patty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Next time I won't throw to you. Um, uh, but yeah, good week. Um, 12 goals scored over two uh, qualifying games. Cahill sat on the bench um, for the first one against Tajikistan. Um, d- decided, Which
1: you hammered them in.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that was a 7 0 win um, and rested. Um, but uh, started in the second game against Jordan, against Harry Redknapp's Jordan, no less and scored a couple, probably should have had a hat-trick in the end. Um, but he's still going. I mean, he's he's got it in his head that he wants to be there for the, for the World Cup. He won't make it to the World Cup, will he? I mean, it's hard to say no at this point when he's still scoring. It's another two years away. I know. But, you know, this is a guy who uh, obviously had quite a few injuries when he was playing at Everton in England, um, but has seemed to have really responded to his move to the MLS and now to Asia. Um, there's no reason why he couldn't. And to be honest, I think why would – Ange Postecoglou, who's the Australian coach, why would he put so much um, effort into bringing him into the camp and in, you know and integrating him into these these new plans, these next steps, if he didn't see him as a potential candidate for the squad? And it might not be that he can start, obviously, but uh, tell you what, even even the Tim Cahill off the bench and the fact that he's a player that the the players and the, and the fans really get around, why not? Yeah, why not?
3: I mean, scoring against Jordan and Tajikistan is pretty much. Correct, major achievement, I guess. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you've got to take that as as it, as it is. Um, but the fact of the remains that he is scoring, and he's playing in China, which is, uh, you know, as we know, no uh, crummy destination these days. Not anymore. Hello,
1: Ryan. Uh, Raf- uh, Rafael, it's in.
4: How are you?
1: Yeah, good. How are you?
4: I'm great.
1: Uh, joining us on the line to talk about El Clasco this weekend is Rafael Hernandez from Group 14. Rafael, before we get talking about the match, maybe you could tell us um, how the sad news of Cruyff's passing has been received in Barcelona?
4: It really doesn't matter which political side you are at the club because the, the club uh, uh, has a clear polit- political rift. So it's clear that everyone rec- recognizes that Cruyff is what... Is responsible for everything that Barca has achieved. Since he came to the club, he he really he really made the club what it is today. And everyone is really upset. And and by upset, I mean that people are really 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 sad. I, I saw many many people crying. Many people visit, uh, over sixty thousand people visited the uh, the Kruik memorial at the Camp Nou. So it's it's something. Uh, Cruyff was more than a player. I, I, I know, I know the, the more than a club slogan is kind of Jerry right now, if you consider everything that's happened with Barcelona and how, how people normally interpret what the slogan means. But Cruyff was really more than a player to Barcelona. He, he actually represented an entire mindset change in the whole club, among the fans and among even the management of the club, and especially at La Masia. And they they all recognize his importance as a football uh, as a footballer, as a coach, and as a and and, and as a genius.
1: Um, how likely is it that they're going to rename the camp new in his honor?
4: Well, it's it's a tricky subject because the, the club right now it needs the naming rights to to facilitate the the whole camp new reform. So it's it's tricky. The the board simply cannot meet and say. Okay, let's rename the, the Camp Nou when, when, when the reforms are finished as Stadi Johann Cruyff. Or of course, uh, debating the possibility. But I think something different is going to be done. Something like naming the entire area around the Camp Nou as uh, with Johan Cruyff's name. Or, or maybe rename the, the mini study, it's, it's the stadium for the B team. As Istagy Jorn and Cruyff, it's possible, but at this moment, it's it's too soon. It's too
1: soon to tell. Well, um, as for the game itself, Barcelona have won nine of their last ten at home. They've not lost since the first days of October, which is about, I think, it's thirty-nine games. They're free from any major injury. They've already humiliated Madrid at um, in the Bernabeu this season. Do you see any chance of Madrid coming away with a win?
4: Oh yes, absolutely, because. Yeah, Real Madrid is experienced yet another big crisis under Florentino Perez, but it's clear that they have an amazing squad. It's, it's actually a squad that's on paper better in the, than Barcelona, but it lacks balance. And Ancelotti struggled with, with it, and Rafael Benitez too, and now it's Zidane. So so basically, all, all, all three of the last Real Madrid coaches have been struggling with finding balance with the team. So if, if Zidane can actually find a balance, at least for this match, so I think his idea, he's going to start Casemiro. Maybe, maybe Casemiro instead of Toni Kroos. I think it's possible. So if he really can strike balance, I, I think it's possible that Real Madrid are going to win. It's not likely, but I think they, they, have, they have a... A good shot at winning. Um,
3: just on that one, if they win, do you think there there could be some more suspense in the title race, or is it over already?
4: Well, if Real wins, they are going to be seven points behind Barca, and after the El Clasico, we are going to have something like I, I think it's seven matches before the the end of the league season, and they would they would have to expect that Barcelona are going to at least lose uh, lose two two matches or draw another two. So I think it's it's really it's really difficult for that to happen. I I think the the title race was over the moment the Real Madrid went went to Malaga played at La Rosaleda and, and they threw there. It was the moment they lost the league and I think they know that. But El Clásico is a matter of honor, so players are going to be are going to be mot- motivated to to play and win. It's I I, I don't don't have any doubt that. If Real Madrid wins a Clásico, it's a it's a huge boost for for the fans and their use uh, they their Champions League title hopes. It's actually possible that they're going to win the Champions League. Why not? It's football after all, and they have very good players. But overall, I think uh, the the result of a Clásico isn't going to to affect the league itself. It's Barca's.
0: Rafael, um, there's been a lot of talk about the. You know, MSN versus BBC battle. You know, it's it's perhaps something that the media has really um, attached themselves to and the fans, of course, because it's the most exciting six players that will probably play um, in the match. Um, but do you see this as the decisive battle or do you see perhaps um, the match being decided uh, in another area or with another factor?
4: Well, actually, if you think about it, the, the BBC has started versus uh, El Clásico against Barcelona. Five times, and in all five times, they they are yet to win a single a single match versus Barca. If all three of them start, so there's that too. Obviously, the media aren't going to talk about it. It was expected because El Clasico has become a match that that symbolizes a lot more than 90 minutes because people have a lot more expect expectations surrounding the match than. Than what actually happens during the match if you think about it because okay the the last classical uh, Barca trashed Real Madrid it was really incredible for me as a Barca fan and I, and I think that for the 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 neutral viewer, it was really good too but if you think about it El Clasico is never really going to live up to its hype because things have really gotten out out of hand so we can expect a good match sure but. There, there's a lot of falling and a lot, a lot of diving. I, I simply cannot deny that it happens. The the players exaggerate and they, they call the referee. It's typical of a, of a classical. But when you, when you think about it, it's really exaggerated. Especially the this one and the last one. The the hype has been insane, and with the, and the results in terms of enjoying football hasn't been as, as good as people. As people expected. More of the neutral viewers, obviously, because Barcelona fans were really happy with the 4-0 win. I think it was a really good match, but it wasn't what people always expect. So some, some kind of football spectacle between the, the two best teams in the world. So it's treated sometimes like a World Cup final. It, it, it doesn't work like that. I think the, the match is really going to be decided at, at the back because Barcelona is having some difficulties at the back and Real and Madrid too, so it's it's going to be more of a match of achieving balance between the midfield and, and, and the defence. Okay,
1: uh, Rafael, before we let you go, a quick prediction?
4: Um, I'm actually expecting a draw, I think uh, something like 1-1 or 2-2, something like that.
1: Over in the Premier League, this weekend's biggest fixture is Tottenham's trip to Liverpool. On the line to talk about this is Dan Fitch from Tottenham Blog. Dan, Jamie Redknapp was speaking earlier in the week and he said that should Spurs win, they'll be favourites for the title. Do you share his optimism?
5: Uh, Should they win, then I think it's a very significant win, yeah, because I think this is quite conceivably Tottenham's most difficult game game yet. It will cut the... The gap at the top to two points with Leicester to play on Sunday. So, yeah, should they win, I wouldn't say that we uh, would be betting favourites, but it would certainly narrow narrow the uh, the gap.
1: Okay, Liverpool have won and lost none of their last six league meetings with Spurs. Are you? I mean, are you optimistic about that as well? I bet that they can turn it around this time.
5: I, I don't think that's too relevant because this team is quite different from ones that have preceded it at Tottenham and it's not, whilst I admire the work that Klopp's doing at Liverpool, uh, they're not the strongest Liverpool side we've seen in, in a few years. So, uh, it's going to clearly be a very tough game and like I said, one of our toughest games le- yet that's left um, but I, I think Spurs have got a chance to win for sure, especially considering Liverpool. Their match against Dortmund on Thursday is surely more important to
0: them Dan, um, obviously we're fresh off the international break. Uh, the Tottenham players, particularly for England have received quite a lot of praise. Um, how do you think those players coming back into the uh, you know into the club camp, how do you think their time away and the praise that they've got and the performance that they've had how do you think that might actually help Tottenham?
5: I think it might, yeah. I mean, normally you think of the international break as being a, a negative. Your players might return injured or tired. But we've had four of our players who not only played in that game against Germany where they were 2-0 down, 1-3-2, but they were, two of them scored, Dyer and Kane, and Rose and Ali were the, the two best England players on the pitch. So they had a real impact on that game, all of them. And if they can go to the, you know, beat the world champions when 2-0 down, it will make them think we can win any game if they didn't already think that.
2: Hey, Fabian here. So I've got a question for you and it's two parts, I guess. So there's no doubt that this Tottenham team is different to the ones that preceded it. They've gotten a lot better. But what would you say about some people's claims that Tottenham and Leicester are only where they are because the top teams from the last few years have gotten significantly worse this year? What would you say to that?
5: Uh, I think that's true in a sense. I mean, yeah, clearly there's no disputing that all the teams you'd expect to be challenging for the title uh, have all done much worse than anyone could have really conceivably expected. Um, but that said, part, part of that is the rise of the, the mediocre Premier League sides. Everyone's got a, everyone's got a, a strong player in their side now. Um, and Tottenham and Leicester have, have coped with that, and they've been the most consistent teams. And so, I think it's probably going to be a very quite a low points total that wins the Premier League this season, which kind of points to it may, maybe being a a more equal league this year.
2: Okay, and the second part would be looking forward to the summer. How will Tottenham build on the success of this season? Who do you think they should bring in? What areas should they strengthen to keep up to keep up with the other big teams that will most likely spend a lot of money?
5: I think the obvious uh, positions they need to strengthen are uh, striker because there's no there's no one to uh, replace Harry Kane if he gets injured or needs a rest. Uh, that's kind of a tricky role to fill because we kind of want we don't actually want someone who's better than Kane. We want someone who's Going to be good, but happy to sit on the bench quite a lot of the time. And then the other, the other role that needs a deputy is Eric Dyer. And again, that might be tough because Dyer is not just a defensive midfielder, but someone capable of dropping back into a, a back three. So finding someone who can have those qualities might be tough. But I think thinking about you when you think about the Tottenham's rivals next season. Most of them have got quite a big restructuring job and need to bring in quite a few players. I think something that could help Spurs is they don't really, we don't really need to bring in that many players, and we've got a couple of young players who can come and feature in the squad a bit more next season as well. So stability could be uh, Tottenham's uh, could be a big thing for Tottenham next season.
1: Um. In terms of looking for a person or a striker who's not quite as good as Kane and is happy to sit on the bench, Emmanuel Adebayor would always be uh, available should you want him. But who would be um, who would be your your ideal choice for that for that position?
5: i mean, Berahino oft, often been linked. Um, I, I'd be very happy with a, a striker who is who has got Premier League experience, and we don't have that um, that waiting period. For them to adapt to the Premier League Whether we can get him for the type of money Spurs wanted to pay last summer um, is another question, but he hasn't got that long in his contract by the summer he's only got another year so i think I think a deal could well be done for him
3: um on the other hand, do you reckon there are any any players being tempted away by the you know supposedly you know Bigger teams still in the Premier League or abroad, um, you know, who might be able to offer larger salaries than than Daniel Levy's is prepared to offer.
5: I can't really see any anybody leaving Spurs to to join. Certainly not a Premier League club. I mean, it's quite a quite a long time since Spurs have had a player poached by a a bigger, stronger Premier League side. I think you probably have to go back to the summer when Berbatov and and Keane both left. So, uh, yeah, Real Madrid have have poached a couple of notable ones in uh, Modric and Bale. But, uh, I mean, they've got a transfer ban coming up. How many clubs really could realistically buy a a player from Spurs now? There's, There's probably three or four in the world. And domestically, why would you want to leave Spurs and go to Manchester United you know certainly not this next season you w- you won't want to be doing that because spurs are likely to be in the champions league so even someone like hugo luis who i thought this would be his last season at tottenham i can't even see him leaving uh, mm-hmm.
1: before we let you go dan uh, do you want to give us a quick prediction for the game at the weekend
5: i'm going to go for uh, a draw which i actually think given tottenham's fixtures between now and the end of the season i think that, that's a very good result and I'll I'm, I'm be quite happy with that even if Leicester go on to win their game with, with Southampton on Sunday.